We are going to be in the book of First Peter this morning. If you would like to go ahead and turn there, if you brought your Bibles with you. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. If you didn't bring your scripture with you, that, that will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. <clears throat> so, I had a friend... Uh, I'll let him remain nameless, and you'll understand why here in a minute, <coughs> excuse me, in high school, that uh, we were in a class together. He was a couple of years older than me, but this was uh, one of those joint classes. Uh, we we participated in debates, cross-ex debate, for anybody who's ever done that, and and we we did that and other things in this class. There was a lot of different things going on, people in different directions. And so we each had to kind of be responsible for our own behavior. And you know when you leave that up to high school kids that that sometimes doesn't end well. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? All of you having been high school kids at some point or <coughs> or soon will be. Um, excuse me. Thanks for the water, Jared. I really needed it. <coughs> so <coughs> high school kids being high school kids. My friend one day decided to go into the computer room, our computer lab at our high school, uh, under the guise that he was to do work. And it turns out that while he was there, he and some of his other friends thought it would be a great idea. Now, this was in the 90s, mind you. The internet was still fairly new. Thought it would be a great idea to log online and, as a joke, sign up for one of the Russian mail-order bride sites. Not a good idea, right? A terrible idea, actually. But they thought it would be hilarious to sign up for that just to see what would happen. They stopped thinking it would be hilarious when, a couple of class periods later, a couple of days later... The website that they signed up through happened to email back to us, which went into our teacher's mailbox. And so she read this note from a Russian mail-order bride website uh, about having been contacted, and it, it turned into a very awkward situation that day when she came to us with the email and basically said to all of us, okay, who signed up for a Russian mail-order bride? Can you tell me who you are? Thankfully, my friend decided to go ahead and, inter- in, you know, uh, recognize himself as being the person responsible. So it didn't get, it didn't, none of us were specifically punished, but we also had our computer time uh, mitigated from that point forward. Uh, we didn't have as much access as we used to, um, rightfully so. I realized that that was a problem. Maybe you have been in a similar situation where something was taken from you or you were punished for something that you yourself did not do that you paid, at least in part, for somebody else's mistake. If you grew up at home with siblings, especially younger siblings, that probably happened to you. I grew up with older siblings, uh, and I know that the idea of, you know, if your parents see the mistakes that your older siblings make, that they might take some of that punishment and apply it to you. Your curfew might get limited if they abused it one too many times, so on and so forth. Those of you who grew up with siblings know that kind of things happen. If you ever played on any sort of sports team, uh, you know that you might get sometimes punished for some of your teammates' mistakes. Uh, Maybe it's running for turnovers in basketball or running for penalties in football. Uh, You dealt with that as a team, as one complete unit. And there was probably, if you ever went through any of these examples, probably at least part of you that said to yourself, this is not fair. This is not my fault. The person who did this thing should be the only one that gets punished. I should not be punished for something that I did not do. Now, this is our modern mindset, is it not? This is our American individualistic mindset. I should be responsible for me and just me and shouldn't ever have to bear any consequences that anybody I'm connected to bears because of something that they did that I had nothing to do with. Consider the financial crisis of 2008. 
In the aftermath of that, and still even today, people began to look towards who exactly we should blame. When things went south and went south quickly, uh, when banks started losing money in, in, in unbelievable speed, we decided to look at who individually, which exact people should we blame? Who needs to get fired? Who needs to go to jail? That became the point of talk shows. That became the point of, 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 of groups of people who were tasked with just that, figuring out who should be punished. But something that maybe we overlook as a people is what about the whole system? What about the countless numbers of nameless individuals who sat by and allowed that to happen? It's true with any kind of societal thing, with any kind of systemic problem. Whatever problem we faced in our country in a history, whatever problems we will face in the future, there are people that we try to put the blame on when in reality all of us, if we're part of a society, have at least a little fault in the matter. And instead of looking always at other people, maybe we should look inwardly as well. Because we love to take advantage of a system, we just don't like to take responsibility for it. If it works out in our favor, we're not going to say anything, even if we know some things might be backwards. If you really talk about the bank crisis, the financial crisis of 2008, a lot of people had some, okay, this isn't right, but you know what? It's working out in my favor, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to kind of coast. But then when things went south, they were pointing at other people. It's these people's fault. I knew it was wrong. I knew they were making a mistake, but I didn't say anything about it because that would have been difficult for me. Again, it's true in any other kind of big societal systemic issue. Go back to your sibling, for instance. Uh, If your sibling does something, stays up too late or stays out too late, and your curfew, like your whole family's curfew, get lowered by 30 minutes, you might say to yourself, this is unfair. It doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't happen. I'm not the one who stayed out too late, even though you knew the whole time that your sibling was going to stay out too late, and you decided not to say anything to your parents or not to encourage them to get back home more quickly. You are in part responsible, but still there is that individualistic part of us that wants to say, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. Even the exception to the rule of individualism in our society, the idea of a corporation, a group of people who unite together. We even do that in a church. We have articles of corporation in our church. The reason for that, the primary or one of the primary reasons for that is so that what? No individual has to bear responsibility. That if something were to happen here that would create some kind of financial liability on our part, no single person in our congregation would be responsible for that liability because we are an incorporated body. So even that, that exception to the rule of individualism is done to protect the individual in our society. So in this context of rampant individualism, which is good in its own right and which has done well by our country, but in this context, we read stories in our Old Testament and in our New Testament. We read the words of God that are written towards a people that are written towards a collective group, a community, if you will. The kingdom of God calls us to something very different than our idea of rampant individualism. Again, consider the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, they were seen, in the New Testament as well, they were seen as a people, not a group of individuals. Now, they were a group of individuals, but the way that they were constantly referred to was a people a collective group that had a group identity. Now, again, that's not to say they didn't have individual identities, but the way that they're focused on throughout Scripture is the group identity. There are several examples where we see this in the Old Testament. During the wilderness wandering, 
we see the people complaining over and over again. All you have to do is read the Old Testament to know that they complained a ton. But what we don't see amongst the individuals who were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, knowing that they would pass away before they entered into the promised land, is we never see any of them completely, or we see some of them, I guess, but we don't see them as a group completely give up and say, because I'm not going to get the reward, I'm stepping away from this. I'm not going to take another step. I'm not going to follow Moses any further because I myself am not going to get the reward. No, there was a sense of a collective identity. And so even though they themselves knew that they would never step foot into the promised land, they decided to keep moving forward because they as a people would. The same is true during their captivity in Babylon and Assyria. Even though there were myriads of them under captivity, under foreign control, taken out of their land, and they knew that they would likely die in a foreign land, they believed the words of the prophets that said that there would be a restoration eventually. Now, they probably had an understanding, especially early on during the captivity, that it would not be in their lifetimes, but they didn't give up. Daniel and the others like him, they didn't just say, well, I'm not going to see this reward, so I'm going to give up. Because, well, if I'm not going to get the payoff, if I'm not going to get the benefit, why should I keep moving forward? No, they viewed themselves as a people that transcended space and time. That they were a part of a group of individuals that would reach into further generations. And so they continued to move forward, to be faithful to God, even in a foreign land when they knew they might not ever get out of that foreign land because they knew that God would eventually deliver them. Not them individually, but them as a group them as a people. The battle of Ai might be the most obvious example in scripture of that collective identity in the people of God. The people of God are coming off a great victory in Jericho. And as they are there in camp, God has some rules about what to do with things, the the spoil of war that one man violates, a man named Achan. And because of that, the entire Israelite army is punished. And the entire Israelite people deal with that defeat. Now, They ask God in the midst of that defeat. Joshua asked God in the midst of that defeat, God, why did you let this happen? But once they understand why it happened, because the sin of Achan, because he took some of the spoils that didn't belong to him, once they understood that that's why they were defeated, you don't see amongst the people of Israel, especially from their leadership, them shaking their hand in God's face and saying, God, that's not our fault. Punish Achan, don't punish us. Now, they weren't happy about the situation, and they took care of it in God's way, but at the same time, they understood. There seems to be this, it doesn't need to be spoken, understanding that they were a people who are responsible for one another in a way that we as Americans would bristle at because of our individualism. And so I say all that to set up our passage that we're going to read, and also to point out that still today in the church in 2018, We exist as many parts to one whole. We talked about our individual responsibility last week when we talked about doing our part in ministry of the church. But today we're going to look at the truth that parts of the whole, when they come together, the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. The whole is bigger than just a collection. It is something completely new. To put it another way, the church is much more than a collection of Christians. When we come together as a community, we are more than just adding us together as a group of people. Marriage is an example in our modern era. 
God tells us that when two become one, that they become something else. The two become one flesh. It's something different. They're more than just you add this person's personality and this person's personality together, and you get what naturally would be the, 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 the sum of that addition. No, it's, it's more than that. It's something else. It's something different. And the church is much the same way when we unite together for the mission of Christ in our context. So this morning, the word I want to say to you is that you belong. You belong to the family of God. You belong to the community of God. You belong to this church, to the church universal. You belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And that comes with responsibility and it comes with blessing. So let's look again at 1 Peter chapter 2, <coughs> verses 4 through 10. Peter writes these words. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter (coughs) refers to the church as a spiritual house. This is very similar to Paul's metaphor of a body that we looked at last week. It is a unit coming together to form something new, but Thinking of it just thinking of it just as a literal house limits the meaning. It's more than that. This house is being built up, Peter says. It's always growing. It's in progress of becoming more like Christ and representing him more fully. And the house doesn't exist in one time or one place, but across time and space. We are part of a spiritual house that goes beyond Grandview, Texas that goes beyond 2018 or even the modern era. We are part of a spiritual house that reaches back all the way to the people of Israel, reaches forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and reaches around the world even at this very instant. When you sing praise to God in this very building, when you sing about the Spirit of God in this very room, when you sing about the love that Christ has called us to have for Him and one another, You do so alongside a woman going to a secret church meeting in China. Martin Luther, as he is nailing his 95 theses on the chapel door. A missionary traveling by boat to a remote Amazonian tribe. A believer who met his end on the floor of the Roman Colosseum. A brand new baptized believer as she is coming out of the baptismal waters this very day in an English cathedral. And the thief who begged for mercy from Jesus on the cross. They're all part of this spiritual house that transcends space and time. We belong to a community that transcends space and time. 
you are a part of the very same community to which the Apostle Paul belongs, to which Father Abraham belongs. You are a very part of the same community to which a nameless believer meeting in secret in Saudi Arabia belongs. We are all part of the same spiritual house. Now, we can just gloss over that really quickly, but I want you to think about what that really means. That when you call upon the name of the Lord, that when you sing praises to him, we have the sound of the voices in this room, but God is hearing the sound of his people, again, across space and time. That in a way, we join in with believers all around the world that existed long before us and believers that we couldn't even possibly imagine that will exist after us. It is a beautiful truth and reality. And not only does this body, does this spiritual house transcend space and time, you could even argue that it transcends this physical realm, that we join in with angelic choirs when we sing praises to God, that those who have passed on before us that represent the great cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrews talks about, that we join in with them when we do acts of service for each other or for our God, that we join in with them when we read the truths of Scripture aloud, Man, it is beautiful to think that as we read these words of Peter, we are joining with them as he was writing them down. As the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these words, he inspires us to use and apply them in our daily lives. We belong to a community, to a spiritual house that transcends space and time. You belong to this community. You are a part, a living stone, as Peter would say. And of this spiritual house, Christ is the cornerstone. Again, this is similar to Paul's metaphors, Christ being the head of the body. The cornerstone is the most important stone laid in a building project. It is the first one laid, and you've got to make sure it's square because every other single stone laid in the building is laid in relation to the cornerstone. The cornerstone is off, the whole building will be off. But if the cornerstone is perfect as Christ was and we lay ourselves relative to him, the building will grow, just as Peter said that it would. The world saw him as a stone to be rejected, but God saw him as chosen and precious. As living stones of this spiritual house, we are heirs of that same choice that God made to see Jesus Christ as the chosen one. We belong to that spiritual heritage. We belong and have the same blessing which Christ received. As Paul would point out in Romans 8, we are co-heirs of Jesus Christ. We have that uh, that that same reward coming to us that comes to him because of what he did for us and through us. It is through our obedience to the cornerstone that we are included in the spiritual house as a living stone. Jesus Christ, he alone is a singular, he alone has a singular distinction. In the body, he is the head. In the spiritual house, he is the cornerstone. Every other living stone is of the same level of importance. We are all secondary to him. Christ is the founder of the community to which we belong, a community that bears his name, and all of us come after that. To put it more succinctly, Christ is first. The rest of us are tied for a distant second. None of us rank above any others. There is no third or fourth place. There is no secondary Christian. No, we are all secondary to Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. We are all laid as, 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 as living stones relative to him and on the same level with one another. As Peter talks about this spiritual house, he describes it in several different metaphors, all of a corporate nature. He says we are a chosen race, a group of people, 
This, again, pushing back and focusing us on the people of Israel. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. I'll come back to that one in just a second. A holy nation, a group of people, a people that belong to God, that God expresses ownership over. This is who we are. This is who you are a part of. I want to focus on that idea of a royal priesthood because he is borrowing from God's language to Israel back in Exodus 19 when he called Israel a nation of priests. We are a royal priesthood. In the Baptist church, one of the doctrines that, we, that d- define us, that, make, that are distinctive, not just to us, there are many other denominations that believe this, but one that, that we are very proud of as a Baptist church is the priesthood of all believers. That we believe that everyone has equal access to God. Again, Christ is first, we're all tied for a distant second. That we need no intermediary. That we do not need to go through any man or any woman to get to Jesus Christ. That we all, through the Holy Spirit, have access to him in prayer. Have access to his forgiveness. Have access to his voice, just like anybody else does on this planet. It's an important doctrine because in years past, there would be certain people who were viewed as in charge, who had access to the scripture, who God spoke to, and they were responsible to speak to everybody else. If you wanted to hear from God, you had to hear from that guy or from that woman. No, it's not that way today. It's not that way. It's never been that way. In reality, we would contend that all of us have that equal standing before God. We're able to hear from him. We were able to commune with him. All of us have that advantage. All of us have that opportunity. But one place where I think sometimes we get a little off with that doctrine in the Baptist church is, maybe it's just semantics, but sometimes we refer to it as the priesthood of every believer or the priesthood of each believer. Now, like I know, I'm, I'm about to get into like word choices and things like that, but I want to tell you why the priesthood of all believers is important. Because you're part of a group. You're not a priest in and of yourself. It's not like it's just you and God on an island alone. As long as you take care of that, then everything's hunky-dory. No, you need to have your individual relationship with God worked out, but it's more than that. Being part of a royal priesthood, being part of the priesthood of all believers is more than just you having access to God. No, it is God also placing responsibility on you as a community, as a chosen race, as a holy nation. Priests weren't priests for themselves. If you look through scripture, no, they were there to provide sacrifices to worship God. They were there to help point other people to God, to help people commune with God. Priests were there, the whole priestly tribe was there for the sake of the whole community, of the whole nation of Israel. So if we are a priest, if all of us are our priests because we are all in equal standing to God, that means we all have equal responsibility. That means we are all an equal part of this family. That means that God not only wants to give us the advantages of having communion with him, but he also wants to give us the charge of having a call and a purpose and a job and a role to fill within this spiritual house. Yes, the priesthood of all believers is a great biblical doctrine that we celebrate in the Baptist church, but we cannot say, we cannot just take the advantages without also taking the responsibility. We are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Peter points out that this wasn't always the case. In the last couple of verses that we read, he said, at one point, you were not a people. If you read it literally in the Greek, he's saying, if at one point, you were a not people. You were a non-group. 
That's who you were at one point, Peter says. And at one point, you, were, you, you did not have mercy, but now you have mercy. Now, here's the cool thing about this, okay? And this is why I love studying what's going on behind Scripture. Peter, throughout this, references Isaiah. He references Psalms. Uh, You can see that in some of the quotations that he makes. But scholars also believe that right here, he's pulling all the way back to the book of Hosea. So if you remember the story of Hosea, you remember that Hosea had some children with some weird names. And two of those children's names were not my people and not loved or not pitied, depending on which, you know, depending on how you translate that Hebrew. It can mean either one. And so now, Peter hearkening back to that idea. Again, a community that goes back to space and time. He himself separated from a person that he's quoting, from a group of people that he's quoting, by hundreds of years, knowing that he would be separated from believers in the future by hundreds and through our lenses, thousands of years. He looks back to Hosea's words and he says, you remember what God said to Hosea about how you were a not people. You were not my people and you were not pitied. You did not have mercy. That used to be true about you. You are part of that group. And all of us, even if we find ourselves having grown up in church before we were negative nine months old and we've always spent our lives in church, there was a time when we as a people, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, going all the way back to the sins of Israel that led them into captivity, when we as a people were not a people, where we had sinned our way out of God's chosen race and holy nation, and yet he decides to come back to us and offer us something that we do not deserve. And he takes, in a corporate sense, he takes the sin of the entire world on himself. And he bears it all at once for our sake. For your sake individually, yes, we have that down as Americans. But he did it for all of us. As Christ bore your sin, he bore the sin of the murderer on death row. As Christ bore your sin, he bore the sin of the homeless person that you drove by yesterday. As Christ bore your sin, he bore the sin of that person in your community, in your family, or in your church that you just can't seem to get along with. As Christ bore your sin, he bore the sin of the entire world. Your sin was shared upon the back of Christ just like every other sin that has ever been committed. And when he bore your sin, he won you a victory, a victory that you get to share with everyone else that is a part of this community beyond space and time, a victory that reached all the way back to Adam and will reach forward all the way until the coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming. We are a part of this community because through Christ, even though we were once a non-people, and even though we were once a people who were not loved or pitied because of Christ, God remedied these issues You belong to that community. And in that community, our responsibility that Peter points out is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. To share the story. This is our corporate mission. This is what we talked about last week that I want you to do your part in. This is a burden. No, wrong word. This is a joy and a purpose that we get to bear together as one. You don't have to do it alone. You're not in this alone. The lone ranger Christian mentality is not biblical. To think that if if I fail, then God fails. Or if, if I miss this opportunity, then, well, that person's lost and going to hell. No. God will come through. God will do his job, his work, Will you get to be a part of it? 
people. You get to be a part of this family, of this team, of this mission. You don't have to do it alone. And here's the second foot to that. You don't get to do it alone. It's not something that you can set yourself off on an island. If that's your heart, then your heart's being misled. This is a communal faith that pulls us not only towards Christ, but also pulls us towards one another. You belong to this team. You are a part of God's spiritual house. Enjoy the advantages. Enjoy the truth that is you have the opportunity right now to call out to Jesus Christ and he will hear, listen, and respond. Enjoy that advantage. But accept the responsibility that he might talk back and he might call you towards a certain purpose, toward a certain ministry. He might call you to be a part of something that makes you uncomfortable. It's something you don't have to do alone. It's something you don't get to do alone. Enjoy the advantages and accept the responsibility because you belong. So let me make that into an imperative instead of just a declaration. You belong is descriptive. tells you a good truth. But what I want you to do is to belong. To be a part of this family right here in this church and around the world to be a part of the family of God, to belong, to do your part like we talked about last week, to find a way to help others for Christ to move through you. Belong. It's not some passive thing where you sit by and you let it happen. No, belong. There's too many times where I see it, especially in our individualistic culture, where we sit by and we wait for people to come to us for people to try to establish friendship and community with us. No, may we be a people who belong, who go, who take the step towards others instead of waiting for them to take the step towards us. Belong. You do belong because of what Jesus did. Make that an active part of your life and belong to the body of Christ. Belong to the purpose of Christ. I'm grateful in a way that I can't express with words, but I'm going to try to anyway because I'm a preacher. I have to. I'm grateful that I get to belong to this community, that I get to belong to all of you. And I'm grateful that there's a part of you that belongs to me. And I don't mean that in any sort of ownership way. I just mean that you have affected my life and will continue to do so. I'm grateful that I get to belong to this family that I get to wake up on Sunday mornings and come together and not only praise God, the master of the universe, but praise him while people that I know and love and that I share life with do the same thing. I'm grateful that I have a group of people that when I'm struggling, I can go to them and share a prayer request that we could pray together on, on Wednesday night or on Sunday morning or over dinner, over lunch, during the middle of the week. I'm grateful that I'm considered by some of you worthy of that same sort of request to come and ask to be prayed for, ask to bear a struggle with. I'm grateful that I don't have to do this alone. And I'm grateful that I don't get to do it alone because there is an individualistic streak within me that sometimes would rather just get it done on my own the way that I want it to instead of asking for help for someone else. But I'm grateful that God has placed me in a community. A community named First Baptist Grandview, but a community that transcends this space and this time as well. You have a gift in this congregation and the people that you're sitting beside right now you have a gift 
and the people that are on the other side of the planet who are worshiping the same Christ that we are. You belong. So belong to this family, just like Christ is calling you to.